Well, here we are again. Welcome, Living Streams. Um, it's good to be with you. I want to say a prayer real quick as we jump into this. Um, it's kind of a wild world out there. Sometimes it can be a wild world inside our own bodies, too. So let's take a little moment and pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for today. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We need your word. We don't need any more um, words from mankind. We just need to hear from you, truth. Uh, we need heaven's perspective. Lord, we're hungry for your word. We don't live by anything but the words that come from your mouth. And we want to live, Lord. We don't want to just exist. So please come speak to us. Thank you for your spirit that, that, that can speak to us. Thank you for the scriptures that, that have so clearly laid out for us your plan and how you work within humanity. Be with us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've got 2020 still going on. And uh, in 2020, we've got the COVID-19, the death toll, the quarantine, the Donald Trump, the liberal, the conservative, the Black Lives Matter, the cisgender privilege. We've got riots, defunding police. It's 150 degrees out there sometimes, and Disneyland is closed. So... Yeah, all of those words probably kind of make you catch your breath a little bit or, or lose a breath or your heart pace quickens a little bit. Um, and I understand that and I want to, in that kind of wildness that we're all experiencing day in and day out, I want to I say these words. This is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6 from the message and just, just let this wash over you. The world is unprincipled. As my grandpa used to say, God is good, evil is real, and the devil is a liar. And that's the absolute truth. The world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog -dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles in that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade as Christians aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. You remember that, that commercial that used to just go, ah, the power of cheese when it would talk about your, satisfying your hunger. And I just feel like reading the scriptures these days, it's just been like, ah, the power of God's word to just come in and satisfy a weary or thirsty or confused soul. And I just love this verse. Um, we're going to get into a whole bunch more verses. But um, right now, as, we're, as this message is going on, as you're listening to this, um, in our sanctuary, there is... There's what we're calling kind of a worship attack going on, a prayer attack going on. And uh, that sounds kind of weird, and I understand that. But basically the concept is um, we're, we've been opening, like I said in the announcements, um, our sanctuary for in-campus, in-person, on-campus gatherings um, for a limited capacity of people 
that are coming, and the whole point is they're just coming to pray. They're coming to intercede. They're coming to engage in spiritual warfare as the Bible teaches us. They're coming to, to kind of just see what we can do, like Moses, Aaron, and her, to lift our hands to try and turn the tide of the battle that's going on in our society and to make sure that all of the division and corruption that is in our society doesn't find its way seeping into our church, let alone the church of God um, as a whole. So I'm so excited about what's going on there. And then with the homeless stuff that's been going on, I had some great conversations with um, some homeless brothers and sisters uh, this week as they come. They're very thankful for the relief. They're very, very thankful for um, being able to, to kind of take a nap and then wake up without you know, some startling thing where someone's kind of hitting them, telling them they got to get out of here or someone's trying to steal their stuff. They can wake up in peace. They keep mentioning it's just so quiet in here so comfortable in here, and it's been a real blessing to be able to spend time with, um, with those men and women and to see maybe if there are some ways that we can help them in a more long-term way. But uh, we're going to jump into John chapter 2 here. Um, if you want to grab a Bible, John 2, and we're going to start in, in verse 13, um, and I'll, I'll read it to us. You can see it there on your screen. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, the temple, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you have authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he had raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said at this moment, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in people. And he did not need any testimony from them, for he knew what was in each person. And so here we have again this kind of concept that God is good um, and evil is real and mankind has a problem. It's got this depraved um, nature within us. And, and then we have the devil and the, the deceit that comes from that regard as well. And so Jesus is here in this temple courts um, and he does something fascinating. He does something wild. He's, he's watching this, this um, this gathering take place, it's the Passover time, so there's probably close to two million people, two million Jews that have gathered in, in Jerusalem. Um, so the city is just bustling, and, and they're at the temple, which is the center focus. People are coming to, to make sacrifices. Um, according to Judaism, that's what, what was required, as a sacrifice needed to be made um, to, to kind of show penance, to, to get forgiven of your sins. That was the deal that God had made with the people. Um, and so they would come to the temple courts with some sort of offering. 
that, that was an admit that they have been guilty, they have sinned. It was an admit that God is good and God is right and they want to be right with God. And they were thankful that they could do something to actually kind of make themselves right with God. And so they would come and they would offer these sacrifices. And, uh, and, and they would come with, you know, a dove or they would come with a cow or they'd come with um, sheep, whatever it might be. And uh, what they experienced as they got there, though, was um, the people who were running the temples, the priests, all of those things, had realized um, that they could make some money off, off of these people. So, so one of the things that was required is your animal would have to be perfect. It would basically have to be inspected by the priests and if there was any fault found in it, then they would you know, not let them sacrifice that. So what the priests did is they came up with their own kind of um, priest-inspected cattle, sheep, and doves. So if you wanted to come and purchase one of those, you wouldn't have to carry an animal from, from wherever you came from. You wouldn't have to worry about the, the scrupulous priests that would come and find fault. You could just come and you could pay for uh, an already approved animal to sacrifice. The only problem was, it was a lot more expensive. There was quite a service fee added to it. And so Jesus was watching this take place. And then not only that, but with the, the money exchangers um, that Jesus was dealing with is, is they would also say, well, we as the priests, we can't receive that money that has Caesar's image on it because it's, it's not holy money. So they actually made up their own money. So not only did you have to purchase a, a priest-approved sacrifice, but you would also have to exchange your money into priest-approved money so that you could purchase your priest-approved sacrifice. And basically, people were just getting totally, totally ripped off. And so Jesus has come with his family. Jesus is 30 years old. Jesus has not gone public with his, with his ministry. I mean, we talked about last week or two weeks ago in John chapter 2 at the beginning, really the first kind of revelation outside of his own family structure um, was to his disciples and to the people at the wedding at Cana when he changed the water into wine. And that's how John introduces us to Jesus, the first miraculous, the first kind of revealing of his glory. It wasn't in some grandstanding way. It was very small town. And so now here there's this kind of other revelation that's happening where Jesus is revealing a little bit more of who he is and the authority that he does have. And so he's pulling out this whip as he's just sitting there watching person after person get ripped off. Maybe he was getting to the front of the line. Maybe he was just thinking about his own mom and what she has done. She's come and been ripped off over and over. We don't know what it was that finally just kind of broke free in him. But he actually went over and he found a cord and he made a whip and he just started making a scene. He was wild. He was whipping. I don't know if he was whipping people or just kind of cracking the whip. We don't know. Um, we know he was throwing, you know, the tables over. He was just really attacking this whole enterprise that was going on. He was driving all the animals out, kind of causing all that commotion. People running out, watching for the stampede. And he comes over to those with the doves. And I guess he didn't want to let them just go, but he kind of just pushed them all out, got them all out, threw the tables over, got the money changers out. He just basically kind of went on a rampage. And then when it all settled or whatever happened as he was walking out, we don't know exactly when security came and I, we don't know exactly what happened at that point, but they questioned him. They said, what authority do you have to do this? Like, wh who do you think you are coming in here and doing this? And obviously they didn't know. No one knew at that point. But Jesus, he just says, you know, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. 
get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So he's saying my father's house. He's starting to allude to this connection that he has with God that was very offensive to the people. And, uh, and, and then in, in his disciples, what John writes here is that he remembered later on as, as he's kind of remembering the scriptures that in Psalm 69, as it's talking about this Messiah, it's a messianic psalm, it says that the zeal for his house will consume him. And so they're kind of putting these pieces together that, that, that something is happening, something more than meets the eye is going on with this Jesus guy. And he's fulfilling these messianic prophecies for zeal for his house and what takes place there. And this righteous indignation and this rising up to, to, to you know, stand against oppression and to stand for the people of God. And that's what was going on with Jesus here. And um, it's funny because I, I think about, you know, the times in my life where I've probably been most zealous, um, where I've been most kind of enraged. And uh, as a grown-up, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I get enraged real easy. It takes me a while. Um, but as a young, young boy, um, I had two older brothers. And uh, I, I don't know if they loved picking on me or if they loved seeing me lose it. I'm not sure which one they loved more, but they loved one of those very much. And uh, there are many times as the smallest um, and uh, scrawniest of my clan, um, my brothers would pick on me and pick on me and pick on me. And uh, ultimately, I would get to a point where I just, I would just scream. I, w- I don't know, I would just start throwing fists and they, they said that it didn't hurt bad, but my tiny little fists would hurt them. So they would go running as I was just try, throwing my fists everywhere. And uh, I even remember one time um, my brother locked himself in the bathroom, and I was so mad that I got like a butter knife, and I stabbed it through the bathroom door. Just this like, oh, I was so enraged, so enraged. And obviously Jesus was not losing it in that regard. Um, he was still under control, and we see that where he kind of comes to the, the, the birds and those people, and, and he's able to say, hey, you need to go off this way, so he's still in control. But he was so filled with this, with this um, outrage. Zeal is the, what the word um, uses, used in the Bible. Um, actually, in the Greek, that word um, is actually zealos, and it uh, really is kind of righteous indignation. It's, it's jealousy. But not, not in the kind of, you know, sick way, but basically like, a, a, you know, a husband and someone is coming to, to take his wife or maybe even to rape his wife. And, and the, the amount of, you know, angst, the amount of rage that, that, it would, that would be built up in a husband in that situation, like that, it's, it's, it's protective. Um, it's standing against um, it's, it's this zeal that, that Jesus shows in this moment. And uh, for you kids, real quick, before we go on, this is the picture that I would love to see you draw. Um, and it, it sounds kind of interesting to draw Jesus, a picture of Jesus with a whip, but I think it's important because there, the, I want you to understand this aspect of God, that he will fight for what's right. He will stand against evil. Um, and so there's this picture. Go ahead and try and draw a little temple and then maybe a picture of Jesus holding a whip and um, I think that would be a fun thing for me to see. So if you do that, go ahead and um, email it to me at david at livingstreams.org. Um, and I'd love to see that. And again, whoever kind of wins the day um, will get something in their mailbox. And some of you should be receiving some of those things if you haven't already. Um, but anyway, so that, that's what's taking place. That's the story. That's what John, again, it's so interesting to me because he, he introduces Jesus in John chapter 2 um, as someone who turns water into wine 
as someone who, who, who brings this um, conversion from water to wine. And then the very next, in the same chapter, in the very next breath, he shows Jesus as this one who cleanses. And, and on the commentary I, reading, I was loving it, they were talking about how that's the way of the Lord. Um, we don't get cleaned up before conversion. First we come to Jesus and we are converted, and then as we walk with him, we start to find the temple of our own lives cleansed. And it's so important to remember that. And if you are someone that, that has not surrendered to Jesus, if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not said, Jesus, I need you, I need you, please come and save me from myself, save me from my world, save me from my, my family history, save me from whatever it might be, save me from my anger, save me from my greed, Whatever it might be, if you have not called out to Jesus and allowed him to come and, and convert you into one of his own children, to transform your mind and heart, um, to, to help you be born again, as Michael was talking about from John chapter 3 last week, like Nicodemus, it's not enough to just try, it's not enough to just fight, we actually need conversion. We actually need to be born again. We need the Spirit of God to come and dwell in us to overcome our own sinful nature. It's the only way we can go forward. And, and as we do, as we make that, that pledge, as we make that pledge of allegiance to Jesus, as we put our trust in him, as we receive him into our life as Lord and surrender ourselves to him, then what happens is cleansing begins. Cleansing begins. And that's what happens here in John chapter 2 as well. And I want to talk a lot about the cleansing today, the cleansing of the temple. Um, there's a couple quotes here that I think are really helpful in helping us understand Jesus, which is the whole goal of every time we preach, to understand who God is um, and understand a little bit of, of how this message can apply to us today. But first I want to uh, put up a quote from G.K. Chesterton. Um, and I, he's just someone who's really good with words and, and uh, here's what he says about Jesus in regards to what he has heard about Jesus and then what he reads in the scriptures. He says, instead of looking at books and pictures about the New Testament, I looked at the New Testament. There I found an account not of a person with parted hair in the middle or hands clasped in appeal, but of an extraordinary being with lips of thunder and acts of lurid decision, flinging down tables, casting out devils, passing with the wild secrecy of the wind from mountain isolation to a sort of dreadful demagogy, a being who often acted like an angry god and always like a god. The diction about Christ has been, and perhaps wisely, sweet and submissive, but the diction used by Christ is quite curiously gigantic. It is full of camels leaping through needles and mountains hurled into the sea. Morally, it is equally terrific. He called himself a sword of slaughter and told men to buy swords if they sold their coats for them. Here we must remember the difficult definition of Christianity already given. Christianity is a superhuman paradox whereby two opposite passions may blaze beside each other. And I, I love the song that we were singing to do this morning. They're talking about there's nothing stronger than the love of God. There's nothing stronger than the love of God. And it is so true. God's love for you is the most fierce powerful thing the world has ever known. It is absolutely true. But at the same time, God's desire for justice rages just as strong. In God, we have this razor's edge where he is perfectly loving and kind and good. But at the same time, 
totally, totally given to destruction of evil. And that's in Exodus chapter 34. We see the image of God. He's abounding in love and faithfulness to thousands of generations, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And sometimes in our, in our gospel message, sometimes in our reading of the scriptures, and especially sometimes in today's preaching, we hear about the love of God, and it's good, and it's right, and it's wonderful, but it almost becomes an exception to the justice of God, the, the zealous and jealousy of God for his nature, for his righteousness, for his people, and how angry and how, how, how wrathful he becomes when evil is allowed to prosper or when we play flippantly with sin. It's very upsetting to him exactly what's happening here. And the zeal of God. So it, it's, it's both together. I mean, the, the words here, inside God, the, the dualistic nature, the opposite passions are love and justice. Or as John chapter 1 says, Jesus came with grace and truth. He came with eternal mercy and everlasting judgment. Both are valid. Both exist. Both are real. And it's this razor's edge that we find in the nature of God. So please don't ever forget about Jesus with the whip. At the same time, don't forget about Jesus turning water into wine. At the same time, don't look at the cross and, and, and forget about what, what wrath was being poured out, what suffering Jesus was going through, that the scriptures even would go on to, would, would actually say, it pleased the Father to punish the Son. Those are hard, hard verses, but it's the, it's the justice of God saying, I need to deal with sin. I have to punish sin. And that's what's so amazing about what Jesus, he stood there and said, then punish me, Father. Put it all on me so that David and so that all those people at Living Streams Church would not have to feel the full vengeance of your wrath, your righteous indignation. And so you, when you look at the cross, you've got to know it's the love of Christ being poured out for us, absolutely. But it's also the wrath of God being poured out and satisfied in the sacrifice of his son. It's very important things to remember. And so don't forget about Jesus in this regard. Another quote here comes from a guy named Alan Scott. And uh, he's saying uh, about this cultural moment we're in, he says, there's something about this national moment that is resettling the altars of our lives. It feels poignant. Everything is stripped back. It's like a cleansing of the temple. God is resetting worship. The reordering of worship overturns the current popular practices of worship. It delights those who value covenant over commerce, which is so true of these Pharisees and these um, religious leaders here, these priests. It throws off everything not aligned with the heart of the Father. Jesus is trying to bring them back into alignment with the heart of the Father. It moves worship from the focus upon the horizontal to the vertical. And then he goes on to talk about how every platform of man should be removed, every effort at popularity removed, every idol of promotion removed, using ministry to gain wealth removed, using ministry to increase visibil visibility uh, removed, every exploitation of people to fulfill our dreams removed, every ignoring of the poor and seeking the friendship of the powerful removed. The cleansing of the temple has never been more necessary. The idea that Jesus would be impressed by what we have built to make him famous or that he would leave our models of worship intact in vain. We are too timid to tear down the temple ourselves, too afraid to confront our own excesses. Edifices for our own importance, born from our own ego, 
rather than by his spirit. The cleansing of our modern temples has begun and it will continue with great acceleration. And that's what's been so interesting about this COVID 2020, especially this summer, is it's not something that the church sits around and watches the world have to navigate, but it, it really has drastically and dramatically affected the way that we go about our church services, our, our interactions with each other, our worship times, our prayer. And that's why we've spent the last two months just really trying to emphasize taking ownership for your own spiritual formation. Don't, don't I mean, if, 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 your, if your whole religious activity, if your whole Christianity was based on that one hour a week of meeting at church, there is nothing left for you. And I love it because I'm hearing story after story about Living Streams people and how there's, there's a lot of meat on the bones, even though we're not meeting that one hour a week on Sunday morning. The life groups are thriving and meeting still, and ministry is happening here and there um, from our interns and other people volunteering here and there, and just the evangelism that's going on and, and the care. Uh, some of our police officers are just seeing so many opportunity down at the police force to share the hope that's in Jesus because they're feeling pretty hopeless these days. And the outreach towards the black community and kind of the pain that they're kind of navigating right now and all the messages they're being filled with and helping them and loving them and making room for them. It's just been awesome to see. And I'm so encouraged. I'm so proud of you, Living Streams Church. But, but we are not through this thing. We have got to ramp up even more and let the zeal of the Lord fill us for more and more as we go forward. I want to talk to you just quickly as we're coming to an end here is uh, the biblical concept of zeal. It, if you read in the Old Testament about zeal, it, it can be troubling. Um, one of the main stories is this guy Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 10. And, and what he does is he uses the sword. He actually is filled with the zeal of the Lord and he goes and he attacks people with the sword and he kills people and, and, he, and he tears down idols and he comes against Baal worshipers and, 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 and yet, you know, obviously we, it's a completely cultural lens that we're looking through versus what they were. Um, it was dog-eat-dog -dog world, way more so in that regard. And, uh, and yet the zeal of the Lord was, was, was causing him to want to come and, and fight, and fight to the death against the things that were set up against God. And, uh, and then you think of David in that moment where the, this, this Philistine giant is speaking evil of the name of the God of the armies of Israel, and David just can't take it anymore. And so he runs after this giant, and he hurls this stone at him and takes him out. He says, you will not be able to sit there and defy the name of my God. He's filled with this zeal, even to the point when Goliath falls, he goes over and he chops off his head and carries it back to Jerusalem. This is gruesome, heavy stuff, especially from our cultural lens. I, in that day and age, it probably would not seem that far-fetched. But the zeal of the Lord was causing people to rise up and stand against the evil that was trying to pervade, trying to overcome. Realizing that, that what Jesus said is, is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The, the, the evil is not, not will, unwilling to be violent or aggressive. And those who are, who are of God need to understand that, that, the, that the violent take it by force. That we advance by, by, by enthusiasm, by aggression. And, and again, now please hear me out. Please hear me out. Because this is Old Testament context and we're talking about the life of Christ and he pulls up a whip and he didn't kill anybody. He, not, he didn't hurt anybody that we know, but he was definitely causing a scene. He was definitely inflamed and he was making people really upset. 
and challenging what they were doing and standing against them. But then we even have times like um, when, when Hitler was on the rise, there's a guy named Bonhoeffer. He's definitely worth studying and reading about. But he was a Christian and he was wrestling with this same thing. What is the church's role in the face of this evil? I mean, millions of Jews were being killed and others. And, and Hitler said it was so clear that it was evil, yet most of the church just kind of stood, stood aside and was passive in the face of it. Some of them were even complicit. And yet Bonhoeffer knew this was not right. And he actually ended up putting together a plot to assassinate Hitler. And it didn't work, but he got found out and he ended up losing his life because of it. But as he wrote, it was a really hard thing to wrestle with, but he knew evil had come and he needed to stand up against it. And so he did what he could. He did what he thought was right. And only history can tell whether that was right. Only heaven will reveal what was really right. But I also think of Rosa Parks there sitting on that bus. And she just is so filled with indignation about what is happening in the society around her that she says, I will not give my seat up. I'm not going to just play along anymore. I'm going to stand against no matter what it costs. The zeal of the Lord consumed her and something beautiful was brought about. A shift was made because of her courage. And she suffered for it and many others did as well. And so we have these times where, where God calls us to stand up in this zeal. And I just really feel like this is a moment where our church, we need to not be passive or complicit. When there is all of this swirling around us, evil, I really do believe, is trying to come in to America, to our society, and to our church. It's coming in in the forms of deceitful divisions. It's wanting us to villainize the other no matter what we do and to put ourselves in different camps that aren't necessarily Christian. And we've got to stand against it. We've got to know better. Um, Romans chapter 10 talks about zeal, and it says that Paul was talking about the, these Pharisees, these, these people that he used to be with. He said they had so much zeal, but without knowledge. They were just pledging allegiance to all kinds of things that were not of God. And so we need the zeal, but we need it to be with knowledge. And so here's what I, here's what I think we need to be zealous for right now. Please hear me out. I don't think we need to go around and kill anybody. Please, I'm not saying anything like that. What we need to get zealous for is real simple, and it's always the same. We need to get zealous for prayer. We need to get zealous for God's word. We need to get zealous for morality. We need to get zealous for evangelism. Church, we, we, it's our time. It's our time. This is what we need to apply all of our energy towards. No doubt about it. First of all, prayer. Prayer is listening to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, letting our attention and affection be on Jesus, and interceding for others. Please, schedule it into your week. Schedule it into your day. Time's for this. Don't be caught with your hands down while the battle is going on. That's that Moses and Aaron and her analogy. We need to get zealous for God's word. This is study the Bible. Don't have zeal without knowledge. Don't, don't listen to all the different things happening in the media or social media. Don't let them tell you what the Bible says. Read the Bible for yourself. Get to know this thing. Get solid in it because if you don't, you will be washed away by the cunning and craftiness of the deceitful schemes that are being perpetrated in our world. You've got to know the Bible. It's our anchor. It's what's going to keep us steady in the storm. Recognize Jesus' voice among all the other voices and revelation from God's Spirit. Seek for Him to speak to you. I've been hearing some cool visions. I shared about it in the weekly email, something that God was speaking to me. 
Um, we need to get zealous for morality. We need to uproot the compromises we've been making in our lives and uphold the personal convictions God has given us. I had someone tell me now, he said, you know what, I, I, I love Jesus, I've been doing great, but I've been allowing alcohol to have a little bit too much of a place in my life. And I, I just, I need to take it seriously. We're not going to get away with loose compromises and loose living, playing games with sin. It's time for us to shore up. Like John the Baptist, who had such intense morality and simplicity, but it caused his word and message to have such intense authority and clarity. We need to take ownership of our own spiritual formation as well. And then lastly, evangelism. There's nothing that makes Jesus more proud of us than when we tell people about him. There's nothing that fills his heart more. Just like we know, there's nothing that puts a party on in heaven like when one sinner repents. And we need to engage in society's pain, find out who's hurting and go be with them. Try and find a way into their lives through hospitality and kindness and generosity. We need to defend the truth of our faith. Don't, don't let people come and tell us we have to, you know, prove we're not a racist by compromising our biblical values. That's ridiculous. And lastly, we need to proclaim the good news of God every day. It doesn't have to be long and complicated. It doesn't have to be a message, but continue to just let people know that Jesus is the answer. Jesus has the answer. And the gospel of Jesus is the power of God to actually bring about salvation. And everybody wants to be saved. Well, we're going to... Um, we're going to have a time like we've been trying to do for you at home to, to take some ownership of your own, own spiritual formation, to practice being the priesthood of believers. Um, and so whether you're at home by yourself or you're, if you're in a group, this is a time we're going to put up a slide and we want you to just take communion on your own. Um, if, if you're in a group, have, have someone who you know, is supposed to lead. You can all just look at that person right now and be like, I think he's talking about you. And that person, you can go ahead and lead everyone in this communion time. But we're going to put up a slide and take three or four minutes um, for you to do that at home. And, uh, and then after that, we're going to have a song. So make sure you come on back and, and we'll settle this all in with a song of worship to Jesus. Just giving him one last bit of our attention and affection before we move on. So God bless you as you move into this next time.